Welcome to FTW for the Women Podcast: Conversations with Women Navigating Nonlinear Careers. Have you always wanted to do something completely different for your career, or wonder how other women have pulled it off, or maybe what sacrifices did they make? Well, you're in good company. I'm your host, Quan Luo. Thanks for listening to the second ever episode. In this episode, I interview Paloma Medina, owner of a store called Eleven Eleven Supply in Portland, Oregon. Paloma's store is one of a kind. On Playsite, the store sells curated stationeries, but truly, the products make up a beautiful children's horse to make you think about happiness and goals—the very two things that we're hungry for. We talk about her experience growing up in the U.S. as an eight-year-old Mexican immigrant. How she inherited her entrepreneurial spirit from both her parents, and how she was able to cross off all her goals and start new ones. Enjoy the episode. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in lots of places. I was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, and when I was two, my parents separated, and so then my dad moved us to Tijuana, very far from, and I have a huge family. And then in Tijuana, we lived there until I was eight, and then we moved to Anaheim, California. So we immigrated into the U.S. And then from there, we moved about every two years until I was in high school. We stayed in Southern California, though. And then after that, I moved to the Pacific Northwest, where which has felt the most like home. So totally. So what was it like to grow up in Mexico? I left when we were when I was eight. So I, I have memories of kindergarten through second grade, and then the rest of my experience of growing up in Mexico was really about growing up in two countries at once. Because we would spend the whole summer, about three months,、um, until I was 16 years old. So from eight years old till 16, I spent the whole summer in Mexico with my family and my mom. And then the school year after I was eight years old. With my dad in the U.S., and so yeah, it was like a duality. It just felt normal to go from operating an entirely surrounded by a huge family who's Catholic and in this totally different country, and then all of a sudden just switching over into the U.S. into Anaheim, California,、mm. <laughs> where I didn't have a single Mexican friend. So I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of it doesn't feel like I grew up in Mexico. It feels like I I grew up in this half half state. How was that half half state? I. You know, when you're a kid, you just think everything is normal. Like whatever you're experiencing, you just presume everyone else has that same experience until someone kind of shakes you awake and is like, "No, that's not. <laughs> that's not everyone's experience." When I got、um, into third grade and I started being fluent enough in English, so I did, had to do second grade again in the states. So essentially, a year after immigrating into you know the U.S., I was fluent enough. I was actually pretty fluent because you're young, you learn fast. And that's when I think my experience of the U.S. changed. In that I started being able to talk to mostly American kids, so mostly like white kids whose family was from the U.S. and and there wasn't really an immigrant experience for them. And I started hearing some of like the racism, and I started hearing some things like people saying, "Oh, well, you're not like other Mexicans." And these are like. To give them credit, they're like third graders. You know, <laughs> they're like they're figuring the world out too, and in that way, kids are a little bit more upfront about whatever racism exists in society. Kids just say it; they they don't really hide it. So it was hard in that I understood I was an outsider, and that I could like mold myself to the American culture, and they would kind of let me slide. <laughs> 
So I did. I like just completely assimilated. My sister and I had a a competition for the first two years in the U.S. where um, we would randomly on the spot ask a friend who was over, like an American friend, who has, between me and my sister, who has the biggest Mexican accent. And we would just put the friend on the spot to choose between the two of us. And we would just, we just had this competition of trying who could lose the accent mm. the fastest. So won. I always won. <laughs> I was two years younger. And at that age, like linguistic ability, just every hour, like every year counts and how much easier it is to learn a language. So my sister just had to work harder. I mean, I, I think it's funny to be eight years old and, and within like six months understand how power works. And I, I wouldn't, I have these diaries where I just wanted, you know, just prayed to God to be white and to have black hair. And I think someone would think that's really sad, but I think it was me you know, just like any second grader, eight-year-old, it was me understanding who has power. How do you get power? Cool. I want to have the thing that gets you power. Like it wasn't complicated. It was just like, cool, got it. Got to be white. It, you know, it gets complicated as an adult, but I think as a kid, it just was like, learn the language fast and, you know, be as un-Mexican as possible. You'll just get the good stuff. Whatever that good stuff's going to be, I don't know, but I know it's going to be better. And then later, of course, as an adult, having to unlearn that stuff is a whole other chapter. What happened after? I think, I mean, I, I guess what's sad is it went, from, it went from being just like, cool, what do I got to do to get power and be valued as I used to in Mexico to then fast forward to being in high school. And at that point, I had only white friends. I mean, really, like I had only American white friends. I was like, you know, an anarchist. Um, I was, you know, super feminist. I was like part of the Riot Girl movement. And it was interesting to be thinking at then at a more advanced level in high school about, you know, about like politics. But never even then did I question my shame in being Mexican and being non-white. I just kind of assimilated even within that system, even when like an anarchist, very Riot Girl system of questioning power and privilege. And so then once I got into college, I went to an awesome school called Evergreen in Olympia, Washington, where they kind of just let you do whatever you want <laughs> and still get college credit. Um, and it was amazing because I essentially spent a year and a half questioning that shame, like the shame of not being white or shame of being Mexican and, um, and got to unpack it and get credit for it. And I learned obviously a ton about power and privilege in a different way then. Both the experience of, of knowing what it's like to be just like a regular kid that's surrounded by other kids who look just like you when I was in Mexico, to then practicing for years how to like perfect assimilation, like, and that like ethnic assimilation. And then to then fast forward in college, getting to unpack all of that and be like, whoa, what just happened in my life? Like, who am I? And what have I been rejecting? Who have I been rejecting? Then... It's, it's kind of, it's really funny. No one asks me about, but it's absolutely the foundation of, of the like equity and diversity work that I do now. Yeah, it's so fascinating it's really helpful to learn this. Yeah, so what was the turning point that you decided, all right, I'm no longer going to ignore that part of my identity. I'm actually going to investigate it. It was weirdly a very specific moment. I went, this was my first year of college, I went with two 
uh, friends who were white to see the movie Before Night Falls, which was in the theaters then. And it's the story, it's shot in Mexico. The whole thing is shot in Mexico, but it, it's supposed to be taking place in Cuba. Um, so it's the story, it's a story of this um, Cuban poet and writer who was a real person. And he wrote this really awesome, amazing, amazing book called uh, Antes que Nochesca in Spanish, which is Before Night Falls. And it's just a story of his life. And it's a very, very beautiful, amazing movie. But the whole time while I was watching it, there's these moments in the movie where Renaldo Arenas, the, the, the poet, is... The, the actor is reciting as a, as a scene is happening that the actor is reciting Lorenas's poetry in Spanish and it's beautiful poetry and I was there in the movie theater listening for the first time in my life like poetry recited in Spanish and it was and it's such a such a moving movie anyway and I was just bawling because I was like I've rejected this language I've never considered that it's beautiful and like powerful, that the idea of being Latino is powerful and beautiful, like never considered that. And I was bawling. And so the movie ended and my friends looked at me, they're like, yeah, wow, this really, this really affected, it is a very sad story. And they were like, this really affected you. And I just remember looking at them being like, oh shit, I can't talk to you about this. You know, like I, I don't know how to, what to say. And at that point, I was like, this, this needs to change. Like, some, this, all of this is wrong. Like, I need people to talk to about this. I need to understand what that feeling of... Uh, there's a, interestingly, there's a word in Spanish that doesn't exist in English, which is desahogar. And desahogar means to undrown. Like, the feeling of, like, getting all the, like, you know, literally, it, it means, like, you can use it literally to mean, like, if, you know, when you get washed up by the sea and the sea tumbled you around and you get all this water and you're, you know, and you and you're coughing and all the water comes out. Literally could mean that. But there's also, it often usually means, like, the feeling of finally getting something out of you that was kind of killing you. And now you're, you know, desagaste. So that was what that felt like. That was such a specific moment, and I, I felt there were tears in my eyes just hearing you recite that story, and I can feel how much how powerful it had on you. And who? Yeah. I mean, movies and literature, I think you know, can sometimes finally put put things together for us in a way that might have otherwise taken years. Absolutely. So, who did you talk to about this? I would say it took four years, maybe five. Before I, I've, I, I just, I mean, it just took forever. I mean, that's forever. <laughs> because immediately after that movie is when I started asking professors if they would, you, you have to kind of get a professor to sponsor you if you want to do independent study. Mm. So I, I had to go and find a, a sponsor for, for this, you know, independent study contract I wanted to do where I would, was going to go and live in Mexico with my mom, which I'd never lived with my mom before, really, as an adult, and my brother in Mexico, surrounded by my family, they all lived together. It's like, you know, like two blocks of just my family, pretty much. Um, and being like, let's do this Mexican thing. Like, let's, let's just like immerse myself in what, what that's like now with this new lens. I finally found, I, did, I had a founder professor, he sponsored the contract. Um, I went and I did it and he was very supportive. But even when I was talking to people about it in Mexico, they weren't immigrants themselves. They'd always, you know, grew up in 
um, Mexico, the rest of my family. And so even there, I, I, didn't, I didn't find that kind of camaraderie or, or mutual understanding there. And so then it wasn't until way, way later when I started doing, I started creating artwork around it, around like this kind of biculturalism and, and the rejection of one for the other and all that. And I think it was like after I graduated, you know, years later, there was someone who came up to me and said, hey, like who knew me from college and said, are you, this was in New York. We ran into the street, into each other on the street in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. And they were, you know, after we got through, they're like, whoa, whoa, you're here, I'm here. And she said, are you still doing artwork? And I, I kind of laughed because that seemed so long ago. And I said, no, no, I don't do that anymore. And she said, why? What? That's a shame. And, and I said, oh, you know, I do other stuff. And then she told me the story about how this one piece that I did, it, it was this little comic book about being eight and rejecting everything Mexican. She grew up in Chile. She immigrated when she was 15, and she did the same assimilation process, like very inten intentionally assimilated into the U.S. culture. And she said, like, I'd never seen someone talk about that experience before. And it was the first time, like five years later, where I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that you also had that experience. And then we just talked for like an hour on the sidewalk in Crown Heights. What art did you do? I did um, mural-sized screen printing. Oh. and installate like small kind of diorama installations. So what was it like to live with your mom as an adult? It was easy. It was lovely. It was so easy. It was because I had this new, these new glasses on, you know, to see Mexico through. Mm. It felt, you know, this is before I did, you know, my master's degree in like psychology and like the science of gold. Like it was before all of that. And I kind of wish I had some of that, like anthropology and psychology and like evolutionary neuroscience, because so much of, of that experience, I think, could have been just better informed. Because what it was like was essentially my brain, I think, now, you know, in hindsight, this is how I unpack it, my brain for the first time feeling completely safe. Mm. Like when everyone around you looks like you, and everyone is speaking your language, your native language. Like you were, you were born with this language. It's, it's a different, again, neurologically, it's different than your second language. And all the songs that people are playing in the streets and the sounds and the smells, essentially sound and smell and look like your first five years of life. It kind of makes sense why I just like sink so comfortably into Mexico. And I think at the time I was like, why is it so easy? I should be having a hard time. There were some comical moments where, you know, I would, my, my mom would send me to the, to the market to get food, like produce. Person would say, well, you know, I'd say, can I have some avocados? And he'd be like, okay, how many kilos? And I was like, well, I don't know. What's a kilo? And he just, because <laughs> I didn't have an accent and I was speaking to him in Spanish. He, I, mean, I think all these people around me were like, who is this alien? <laughs> you know, I think they just thought I had a developmental disability or something. Cause I was just like, what's a kilo? <laughs> basic, basic adult things to know as mm. a Mexican. And he had to like show me, you know, and I was like, Oh, it's like two pounds, you know? Anyway. <laughs> so aside from that, it's hard to describe that level of like, what I would now define as such deep neurological safety, which is cool. And was your dad supportive of that? 
My dad was supportive of, of us spending every summer growing up in Mexico because his family also was all in Mexico. And he, you know, we didn't, we didn't have money to send to go together as a family back to Mexico. So we were, it was like, by sending us, he was kind of sending himself mm. um, and getting through extension to continue his relationship with, you know, seven siblings and all of their nephews and nephews, you know, all that. And then later as an adult, I, you know, I've never talked to my dad about that experience of, of assimilation or growing up. I think when you immigrate, what I've since heard is when you immigrate into the U.S., you know, as a full adult, that experience, that's just a, such a different experience. Not better or worse or anything, just, just different. Because it's about who you are at the core surviving and thriving in a new culture versus when you have not yet defined who you are at the core, like who you become with the pressure of, of assimilation. I should probably talk to him, you know, like he's never seen my artwork. Yeah. Which is I'm so curious what he would think about it. I mean, I wonder if he just, I've heard this from other kids who, who immigrated when they were kids and talking to their, <laughs> their parents about it. I think they just, Sometimes I have a sense that he would just think it's like navel gazing a little bit too much, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was such a logistical issue for him to move to this. Mm. He's since traveled the world and he knows what it's like to be an outsider. And to him, it's, you know, you travel and you're an outsider and it's funny, you know. What are your parents like? They are entrepreneurs as well. My dad, but like in a very... <laughs> I don't know how else to say this, but like in a very immigrant way, in a very Mexican way. <laughs> My mom uh, is a artisan, like craft person. She models these small little clay figurines and she's made a living for now 20 something years um, as a single mom. Actually, she, she raised my, my brother by herself, um, used, just selling these little figurines in, um, in a little town in, called Tonala near Guadalajara. And she just, yeah, she's like, does her own thing. And my dad, when he was a doctor in, the, in Mexico, and he, you know, you can't just transfer that over into the U.S. And so rather than go and repeat all that schooling, he took an ROTC course in sign making, like, you know, hand lettering signs. And then he just built this weird, technically illegal business, always flying under the radar of actual business practices, you know, like getting a, you know, um, different tax, whatever, you know, like all that stuff. He didn't mm. do any of that. He just, he just like kind of set up shop and, you know, 30 years later, that's how he supported us was with his little signs. He also sold, um, he bought and sold used cars. He just kind of like just does what it needs to get done, which is a very, very Mexican mm. way of looking at how you make money. Like you don't, you don't first think what job can I get? You're just like, it's just in general, how do you make money? And sometimes a huge percentage of my family just kind of sell stuff, make stuff, you know. They just, so my dad just transferred that into the US, that kind of mentality. So for me to start a business, it felt very normal because I've seen them do it my whole life. Yeah, you do whatever it takes. Just do whatever it takes. Also, my, I have a sister and she didn't pick up any of these family traits both of my parents are stubbornly like have a kind of intense level degree of need for autonomy. They just need a lot of it, a lot of freedom, a lot of autonomy. Mm. And I definitely got that from them. 
which is why you don't go and become an entrepreneur because you can't ever have a boss <laughs> for very long. I totally agree. Yeah. And so I, I like that they made that a normal thing because mm. I think I, it is what makes me happy. And I don't know that I would have ever found that in a corporate environment for too long, you know? But you were at once in a corporate environment. I was for a little bit <laughs> in a corporate yeah. environment. Yeah, at Etsy. What happened after college? After college, I, because of my background in like community justice and like anarchism and things like that, I just, I thought I had two options. I could be a social worker or I could be a teacher. So I chose a social worker route and I worked for in homeless healthcare services for six, maybe seven years, a long time, the longest I've ever had a job. Um, I've had a lot, like 30s jobs. I think last I counted, I've had 30 jobs, not including temp jobs. And it's because I just always was, you know, bouncing around. But I had that job the longest because, as it turns out, it was a very unique homeless health care kind of clinic where we kind of just got to make up our own rules about how, what homeless health care should include. Mm. We had an amazing boss and we just did what it needed to get done. It was very entrepreneurial. And, um, and if we needed money, then we would just go and find a grant. We get the grant. We have the money for two years. And, you know, it's just very, very open, very startup-y. I didn't know that at the time. But, and so I decided that this was right after college. I decided that that's what I want to do. I wanted to continue doing this work, except I, I had no money. You know, that work doesn't pay anything at all. I was managing, I think, four clinic departments and getting paid nothing and just the stress of it and all I was actually pretty burnt out but I loved the work so I was like okay I'm gonna go and I'm gonna get a master's degree so that they'll pay me more <laughs> and so that's why I went to New York I went to NYU to do a master's in public administration which is essentially an MBA but for nonprofit and government work and I realized then that I hated that degree speaking of, of like autonomy I also realized that I, I was spoiled a bit at Evergreen and that I got to do whatever I wanted. And, and I learned a ton that way. And in a master's program, you know, you kind of, they tell you very much which classes to take, what to do. And so luckily they, NYU let me, this is very rare for that school. They let me do an um, independent study program. And that's when I started diving really deep into neurology and psychology and coaching and performance coaching. So when I graduated, I was like, what, what, I just presumed I was going to get another nonprofit job, just hopefully paying more. And somewhere in there, I found this job at Etsy that they called it a um, learning and development senior manager. And I was like, what is that? Like, (laughs) what's learning and development? And I read the job description. I was like, oh, I do that. You know, like, that's what I do. Weird. We just called, you know, in, in healthcare, they call it continuous quality improvement. That's the same. So I decided to make Etsy a, like this gift box because also, by the way, I loved Etsy already and all my friends sold their stuff on Etsy. So I was like, I need to get this job. <laughs> and so I made them this gift box with my application and I got hired. And that was my first tech slash corporate slash for profit of any kind, really real job. Wait, can we unpack this gift box? And <laughs> it was a crazy gift box. What did you make? Well, it was a digital gift box. And so it was this, this like, I think it was a website that had like a code for Etsy. 
that said like, you know, it was like, I, it was very clear that I was like, I made this website for you, Etsy recruiters. And they actually like, there was a little button that un- unpacked the box. And inside of it, there was a weird resume version. Cause I was like, they don't want a resume. <laughs> <laughs> they want like a visual, you know, of my experience. So there was these, it was this kind of self-guided tour. And then at the end, I found this image I think this is what won them over. I don't know, actually. For all I know, they never saw it. I think they saw it. But no, yeah, I remember now Isaac mentioned this. So the last image was of, I'd found this 80s image of this teenage boy wearing all um, bedazzled clothing, like jacket, belt, jeans, all bedazzled. I made some, you know, the last page was me saying, like, I know that learning and development and leadership development is more than bedazzling. I get that. I hope you, you know, through my portfolio, I've seen that, that I, I know how to do more than that. But also, bedazzling is awesome. Thanks. Bye. How long did it take you to do that? Oh, I think I did it in like three days. And I just was like, you know, I learned some basic HTML at Evergreen. I was just like, let's do this. So I think it was three days. It was very much, a, you know, a love letter. I don't know why I was so sure that this was the job, but I was sure. And it was, by the way, it was like a gateway in so many ways, it was a gateway to everything that I'd been strategizing and, and goal planning for. So did you mail this gift box or was it an email? No, it was very much all digital. It was like, it was, I think I, you know, did the full application online thing. And then I found the recruiters. I think at the time it was, who was it? Probably I'm Erica, I know for sure, emailed it to them and individually found their emails and said like, I didn't know how to include this link and password but I made you a, a kind of application gift box. That is absolutely amazing. I've never heard gift box <laughs> job application before. That's amazing. And you got the job. And I got the job. Barely, but I got the job. How long did you spend at Etsy? I think I was there three years. I was there two years and I think a third year as a contractor. What was the biggest lesson um, you learned at Etsy? Oof, that's a good question. That's hard. You know, as you know, there's this thing at Etsy, a a tradition of the last lecture. When you leave Etsy, you, you can, you know, the whole company gathers or used to gather and you, you'd give your last lecture. And I never did that at Etsy. And I remember one of the reasons was because I could not imagine how to condense what I learned in those two plus maybe three years there. I mean, I think one of the biggest things was I really learned, I got to practice again and again and again and again uh, influence. Just like all of the ways to do it, all the ways to do it wrong, all of the ways to do it so that no one knows that that's what you're doing, all the ways to do it up front so that people know what you're doing but still go along with it, all the way, yeah, I mean it, all the personalities, all the different, I think the biggest thing I learned at at Etsy was like, I knew, I knew intellectually the psychology of influence, but I, I'd never had gotten such a rich, rich and long list of opportunities to practice it. At the time, Etsy, when I joined Etsy was 400 something employees. And when I left, they were 900. Um, like I think teetering into 900 and it was, you know, before then the biggest company I'd ever, by which I mean nonprofit that I'd ever worked at was maybe a hundred people. 
And so that scale of change management and instituting, you know, there's things that were huge that took me, you know, two months to convince and, and put into action to convince people about. And then there were things that were tiny and took me like two years mm. there. It was great. Yeah, what happened after Etsy? I did that thing that I always tell people not to do, which was that I never believed... I left Etsy believing, rather, that there would never be a place as good of a fit. Like, there, were, there could never be a job that would be as good of a fit. I would just have to... But it was no longer a great fit because it was New York and I wanted to leave New York. Um, and I'm not a very good remote worker. And so I just figured, well, I can't have my cake and eat it too. I just need to decide what do I want, you know, because I can't have the whole thing, which is funny. I, I just, I always tell people like that's, none of that is ever true. Like you can always have a better cake and eat the whole cake too. But I really, I felt like it. And so I just bounced around doing contracting jobs with companies like Life Labs and Reboot, which were all very supportive and really lovely places. But they, again, it was all mostly remote work or a lot of travel which isn't a good fit for me. And so I think about a year and a half later, I decided to move back to Portland. You know, at that point, I had been doing, independently, I had been doing leadership development work and some equity and diversity training work. And when I moved back to Portland, I said, like, I can tell that I'm, I'm not going to stay on this little kind of merry-go-round of remote and travel training work. So what do I do? And... I decided that at that point I'd, I'd like checked off all these goals, um, like really huge goals, you know, like tripling my income, check, landing my dream job where I get to institute policy at a company, check, you know, like get my ass whooped, check, you know, like <laughs> all these great things that you're like, yeah, I, great, check, live upstate and work you know, earn as much working 10 hours a week as I, when I was working full-time at Etsy, check. Like I, I really was like on a, on a roll, but I was also bored. So moving back to Portland, it was kind of like, do I keep doing this stuff or do I just set a totally new goal? And I decided to set a new goal and it was to open a store because it, it was different enough that I knew my brain would feel re-energized and, mm. you know, shaken out good. All the things that I felt when I first graduated from, you know, with my master's and joined Etsy at you know, that time, joined Etsy. And so, yeah, so here we are. I've opened a store. I'm still learning kind of how to do some of the training work. Um, I also decided to focus on equity and diversity training, which is also totally whipping my ass in a great way. And running a store is totally weird and great. What about owning a store? That was interesting. Well, yeah, there's two parts. There's the retail part. Well, I mentioned that I've had 30 jobs, 30 plus jobs probably at this point. Most of those were in retail, you know, just college or in high school working part-time. Every time I, I've, I've done one of those career exploration exercises, um, I've done a few of those both to test them out for clients and just for myself. And every time I do those, the jobs that I always write down were day to day, I felt the most content, like that very simple kind of happiness. It was always retail jobs. And so when I was thinking about what to do next and moving back to Portland, I, I started, I gave myself time to just be like, what, what is it about retail? Like I, at the time I was like, well, I clearly aren't going to go work retail. So what is it about retail that we can kind of glean? I really was like, actually, no, screw that. Like it is retail. It is high level, a high number of tiny transactions between humans where you just get to be helpful in tiny ways 
high frequency of helpful. So it's like this combination of high frequency and helpfulness with strangers that I loved. I also think it's highly skilled labor. I, and I, I think I always resented that it's paid low and it's considered low labor and it's not like your parents come home and, you know, brag to your to their neighbors about how their daughter works at a retail store. Like that doesn't happen. And I, I, I just realized at the time, like, I, I think that's all wrong. I think this is skilled labor. I mean, when you do it good, you just, like it's really, by the way, it's just influence, right? coaching and it's leadership. It's all these things that I've been practicing and, and coaching other people to practice, but in these like tiny micro moments um, and doing it again and again and again and again with perfect strangers. Like that's hard to do. Well, it's hard. And I was like, I miss that. I love that. I miss it. If I own my own store, then I get to do whatever I want and I get to pay myself and I get to pay others and I get to treat them like the skilled laborers they are. And then the second part was that I, what I didn't like about the tech world is that it's a bubble and if you worked in other industries and then and then move to the tech world or if you you know move out of tech into other industries you realize that the tech world is a, a very intense bubble i appreciated that kind of belonging and inclusivity that it creates because you're just in this little world together but i as far as impact i didn't like that part of it that i was really just reaching a very tiny 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 demographic mm. um, in that work. I, I wanted to have a broader impact. So I was like, well, retail is weirdly and incredibly, can be an incredibly inclusive thing because anybody can walk off the street. Anybody can walk off the street into a store. And if they're treated well, then they definitely feel included. And it's not very hard to treat everyone well. So I was like, I th- you know, I just let myself, I think for three months I mulled over. So what's, what do we sell? what is the thing that everyone is hungry for like across demographics and across class levels and things like that. And that's when I was like, Oh, happiness and goals. <laughs> you know, like that's a, that's a very um, wide reaching needs and desires. So we just, I just got to figure out how to sell the psychology of goals and, and like happiness. It's funny. Cause it sounds so easy that you have, <laughs> thought about yes I need those two parts and here's what the first part here's the second part but were you ever thought in the middle of this process of getting a store setting it all up that it was a crazy idea yes yeah there's this quote that I have on my wall and I've had it for years and I need it there all the time um I actually bought it from an Etsy seller and it says I think it says steps to success. One, say yes. Two, panic. Three, pull through. Mm. And so it, those three steps are just, I, yeah, I think all entrepreneurship is reminding yourself that if you're in one of those three steps, you're doing fine. Mm. Including, you know, obviously including the panic one. It just means you're, you, you got to push through the, the next step. Um, you can't really stay, you can't stay in any one of those three for very long before you get to the next one and then you get to the next one. So yeah, I mean, you know, last August was when we did our first pop-up. And by we, I mean like me and whoever I could convince to help me. (laughs) But it feels, you know, always really cool to say we, but a lot of people helped me. So last August, so a year and a half ago, which means that in April was when I was like, 
does this story even make sense? Because it doesn't exist in real life. It's mm-hmm. not online. You're working every day on this concept, on this thing by yourself at home. And you have no idea if it makes sense to another human being. Uh, when I would try to explain it to people, everybody, ev- all of my friends were like, you got to clean that up. I have no idea what you're talking about. Everyone. And eventually I just got stubborn and said, you know what? Just wait till you see it. I don't have to convince you before you see it. Once you see it, then tell me if it's totally batshit crazy, you know, but not until then. So I think part of the panic that this has been another kind of practice, I guess an opportunity to keep practicing what happens in that panic phase where you realize I could keep panicking that this thing is the worst idea I've ever come up with and I'm going to lose all of my life savings. It's then moving over to conviction and saying, well, it doesn't have to make sense until I decide it should make sense. I'm just going to stay stubborn. It's really just a balance between those two things, you know, like panicking and then getting stubborn and panicking and then getting stubborn. Like I don't mean to oversimplify it, but it's kind of what it feels like often. So now that you have the store, what is the goal that you're working towards? We've been open for four months. And I have to say, it feels like I'm still opening the store, if that makes sense. Like, my guess is that I won't feel like the store is finished opening. It's officially just been opened. (laughs) Now that I'm here, I'm like, okay, this is going to be different than I thought. Maybe April of next year is when it will feel like, okay, now that the store is open, what's next? Because what it feels like is, you know, you open the whole like field of dreams thing. Like if you build it, it they will come and, and we, you know, everyone knows it's not actually real, but that's kind of where, where we're at with the store. It's like, we've opened it, we've built it. And now we have to do the, the actual hard work of getting people to it, not in any way resting on Laurel. So if we have two really good days, it's not enough. We don't have a pattern. We don't know yet what our average monthly, you know, we don't have a pattern because we haven't been open long enough and the holidays are coming. So like all of it, I'm right now I'm doing the big PR push. I'm learning about PR, have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> um, especially retail PR, especially local, where they're going to open the online shop, which will be very curated. Uh, I know nothing about that. So it really, yeah, it feels like I'm still opening the store. Yeah. It does feel good. Congratulations. This is such achievement and I, I really felt when we were talking I felt like everything just falling to pieces where in reality it doesn't ha- it didn't happen like that yeah no it's it does you know you look in hindsight right and you're always like oh yeah it just kind of lined up um, but you forget that it was those moments of panic and then sticking to your guns and then mm. panicking and sticking to your guns that allowed for all those things to fall into place it's nice to reflect on it at this juncture so I'm kind of thank you for for giving me the chance to kind of reflect on it, you know, pull my head above the, the day-to-day grind of it. So lastly, share with me something that, about yourself that you're working on improving. This has been one that I've been working on for a while and definitely throwing myself into the fire of like opening a store has put that to the test. And I think that's understanding how much emotion to show, like uh, essentially how emotionally transparent to be, especially... I think as a woman in what is, so I, coming from tech, I was in a woman in a mostly very, very male dominated world. In healthcare, I was also a woman, in a, especially in leadership ranks in a very male dominated world. And this is my first time in Portland and in, with a store where I'm surrounded a lot by other women leaders and business owners. 
I mean, I've kind of intentionally created that. And it's the first time that I've gone to see, be surrounded by women who are like very emotional or emotionally transparent. Hmm. Because in the corporate world, you, I've gotten slapped on the hand many times for being, you know, showing that you're yes. annoyed, mm-hmm. <laughs> showing that someone was being completely disrespectful to you. you. Can't show it; you just have to talk it through. And so it's it's kind of been interesting in that. And also, I have employees again. I guess when I was talking about like the panic, like how do you go through hard days and panic days? And what is what kind of leader do you want to be? And now I'm kind of like working on figuring out that. It's kind of part of your leadership brand, working on being, continuing to be intentional about that. But, you know, because the thing you're balancing is how authentic to be, which humans very much appreciate and respect authenticity, but also culturally women acting too negatively emotional. You know, I have the science to back this up. Like we, we are kind of socially punished for that. And so, yeah, so like how to, and also it affects other people, you know, if someone is always angry, not that I am, but if I were to be, I can see how that would affect my employees and, and just obviously the store and my partner and everyone. But it's been, I think, putting yourself in a place where like great opportunity to practice that balance of emotional transparency versus, you know, being a stoic leader. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Paloma and her store, visit 1111supply.com. Email me at kwan at fordwomanretreat.com if you have show ideas or just want to say hi. I love that. See you next time.